show with me, Swinton Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we're joined by Terminal Philosophy to discuss how do people come to believe what they believe? Tim. In terms of beliefs, I'm not talking about minor matters, although what separates minor and major matters may be the question in itself, um, but rather the more important questions. I mean, one of the key choices to name a given one is whether you're a theist or an atheist. Um, this remains a relevant question. In the past, it was extremely relevant. Another relevant question, arguably, whether you're a capitalist thinker or a market-oriented or more like a communist or a syndicalist, or you know whether whether it, some sort of that syndicalism or Marxism is true. Again, that was a major, I'd still argue this continues to be a major two beliefs. Now, with all beliefs, there's always some question, how do you know if person X holds that belief and what someone who holds that belief look like? So like, you know, if if I think that person, if that person is a carpenter and he uh, says he's a carpenter and he's, you know, fixes furniture, builds furniture, um, people sell to his goods, and he identifies identify the carpenter. That that sort of meets the thing, meets the sort of at minimum a Wittgensteinian standard of like what a carpenter is. And you can say, well, what is it, an ideal carpenter? I don't I don't know, but like it, it's good enough to say that you know that person is a carpenter. If if Swithin, for example, says that he is a Christian, and he publicly says that you know he attends church semi regularly, that by all intents and purposes, it's he's a Christian. You know, if Hans Hoppe says he's a uh, uh, libertarian and, uh, you know, he runs a libertarian institute of some variety. Well, maybe he's not a libertarian anymore. Uh, he's a libertarian. The same with Ben Burgess. If he says he's a Marxist, other people call him a Marxist, he writes for Marxist-friendly positions. So that, in that sense, there's sort of like, as long as there's some sort of social recognition. Now, whether or not, for example, that the founder of Rhode Island, who was who, who probably only thought like 20 people were saved, thought that all the other Christians in the world were actual Christians and not just heretics that were worse than um, a pagans. That's not really the issue at play here. Like, so like if Ben Burgess or Swithin aren't true Christians, that, that that's not really the thing in itself. But it's like if people hold beliefs about certain things and it's generally accepted that they believe them. And I'm not just talking about like whether like tea is better than soda or like, you know, quote unquote minor matters, because you do get the question of free will. Which I think we can we can take that rabbit hole if we want to take that rabbit hole, um, but you know most people agree at least on an actual people don't live like they're determinists like that's that's what go back to our ad hominem episode we did like um, three months ago people don't live like they're ad hominem so like like so people come people seem to have beliefs they seem to have some at minimum post hoc rationalization for why they believe um, what they believe now again on like important questions like do you think um, the you know uh, vaccines are good, or do you think that uh, 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 I'm trying to think of it. Do you think the uh, president of the United States is fairly elected, or do you think that um, JFK was uh, you know not as was just assassinated by a lone gunman? Like there are certain important questions at a given time. It does really that there's sort of cost. Like if you think Bigfoot exists, there's not really any social cost. So there's a social cost part to belief that you know like um what you do and don't believe and like on minor matters you might just defer to experts and it's just irrelevant um so you know you could just get into the sort of minor versus major thing but again i i, I think there is a certain rationalization that kids so i sort of wrote some possible reasons how people come to beliefs the first of can is arguments evidence reason that's that's sort of like the first framework um the next one would be like force money persuasion like sort of thick persuasion like 
oh, if you don't if you don't believe in this, you'll lose your job. Or if you don't publicly if you publicly say you don't believe in this, you will lose your job or you'll not be as hireable. That's a kind of soft, like, and I've been in this sort of outright, and then the indoctrination, education, propaganda. Now, again, you just say, well, they're self-propagandizing too. That's another way you could argue if people believe it. Again, one of the critiques the atheists will make of Christians is they're just indoctrinating their children. And of course, it's Brian Kaplan, but as Brian Kaplan would point out, like that you could also argue that it's genetic. That's another component that things you could make. that thirdly, you know, that people just inherit of something. They inherit the genes of their parents and their society around them. There's twins studies. So I sort of outlaid like those are like three types. So 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 um so start with TP here. I mean, what do you think ought to make someone change their minds? Like, I mean, what, what framework broadly would you sort of set up to explain why do people come to believe what they believe? And again, I'm sort of sidestepping the free will question, but if we want to go down that rabbit hole, we gladly can. TP, thanks for being on. All right. Well, thanks for having me once again. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I think your, I think your, your, um, I think your impulse to initially sort of forego um, discussions of free will is fine, and we can certainly get to that here in a moment. Um, but um, I think it goes without saying here that we're definitely uh, deep within the epistemological realm of philosophy. I think uh, for the broad majority of uh, modern humans and how they come to believe what they believe is probably through, it's, it's through a small collection of things. And I think, first of all, it's probably through, um, I think it's probably a combination between their own culture. I think it's out of uh, pragmat, like pragmatism and convenience. And then I think lastly, they'll probably arrive to reason. So let me just uh, give a quick sort of uh, breakdown of how I sort of view it. And then we can uh, dissect how reasonable or unreasonable it might be. But um, I tend to view how the when you, when you look at humanity and how they come to believe what they believe, I'm sort of thinking of like a sort of a, a bell curve distribution with uh, the far left hand side of uh, the bell curve being Perhaps people who are in so-called authoritarian states, uh, or, or uh, you know, uh, deeply um, either authoritarian or totalitarian states, uh, that could, you know, and what we call totalitarian and authoritarian today is absolutely up for debate. But these are places, arguably, like North Korea or China, uh, perhaps Iran, Turkmenistan, Brunei, so on and so forth. Um, Many of the people, the populations of those countries might come to believe what they believe through um, through variables like propaganda or force. And, and, and by which I mean, you know, these societies are probably very, um, they're probably very, uh, they're, they're much more oriented towards a collectivism than they are, say, the sort of hyper individualistic societies that you see in the Anglosphere and in the West. So. And then, you know, from that, uh, you know, we have before we started the before we started our broadcast today, we were speaking a little bit about Japan. And, you know, when you look at Japan, there's not much of an advocacy within Japanese society that encourages uh, hyper uh, individualism. Uh, it's more of a uh, collective culture. And uh, uh, from that, um, you know, there's sort of a benef the benefits of a sort of a uniform and functioning and pragmatic society. So that is sort of the left-hand side of the, uh, 
the distribution of the bell curve. Uh, you know, uh, you could say uh, global epistemology bell curve, if you want to call it that. And then in the center of the bell curve, the sort of the median or the mean, um, I think honestly, most people, and again, this is the majority of humanity, people just really come to believe what they believe out of convenience. And, you know, first and foremost, I, I think it's out of sort of convenience and expediency. And it's also, it, it comes out of uh, what is con, um, probably probably their culture and then out of what is, um, I guess, what brings them more opportunity. So maybe that plays a bit into pragmatism, but it's a combination between uh, what is uh, convenient and what has already uh, been sort of imported to them as a, as a sort of uh, sociological de default setting through their culture. Um, and then thirdly, uh, on the right-hand side of the bell curve, you would have, say, uh, uh, the group of people, and these are more academics, intellectuals, authors, bookworms, people who are philosophically inclined, who have a, an acute interest in the humanities, I would say that this group of people is more persuaded by reason and through uh, the sort of axiomatic deductions that are brought forth in many of these philosophical arguments. Um, you know, and this, and for myself, I suppose I'm sort of a combination between the second and third categories, where I come to believe what I believe through sort of the the culture I was brought up in. Uh, somewhat of what is pragmatic and convenient and expedient, but also I've had the benefits of having a classical Western education, and I've um, I, I've had the benefit of exploring a lot of Western canon and philosophy and history um, and sociology, and so I've had a lot of time to think about these things and and deduce uh, what uh, is. What, what is a persuasive uh, thing to believe in what isn't through um, through reason and through uh, uh, through deductive logic and things like that. So I'm sort of a, a mix of the two. And the last thing I'll say here is that what's a bit interesting in the conversations of epistemology and free will and determinism and all that in the modern day is that now, and I'm sure it exists out there somewhere in the world, but I haven't read too many uh, philosophical works that discuss epistemology with the development of history in mind, uh, and I don't, I, I guess you, this is a bit Hegelian, but what I mean by that is that you know, we alive today in 2022 have sort of the benefits of a long historical track record with us. So what I mean by that is, is that modern people at this stage in history, at this development in history, have the benefit of, uh, we, we, we've, we've had the benefit of a lot of political, philosophical, and moral experimenting having done for us already throughout the, you know, thousands of years of agricultural civilization. We've already had a lot of hard work done for us. So it's not like, you know, we're born and then we have to, we have to toil over the possibilities. Well, maybe we should jettison liberal democracy and, and maybe we should try what the, uh, the Neo-Babylonians or the Assyrians were up to, or maybe we should try Maybe we should try some sort of, you know, uh, Stalinistic uh, authoritarian Bolshevism. Maybe we should try uh, something like, uh, you know, what the Mennonites are doing. Uh, you know, now all of those options might have some appealing dimensions to them or not. But uh, the fact is, is that 
we we simply come to believe what we believe because we're a long product of historical experimenting and um, not that I'm a Francis Fukuyama or neoliberal fan per se, but uh, we're sort of settling on these uh, these uh, common denominators of historical development, and that could be something like uh, Western neoliberalism. It could be uh, um, some form of authoritarianism. It could be some form of isolationism. So, um, yeah, the point I'm making there is that, uh, you know, we've had the benefit of a lot of people in the past who have ruled out some of these options through either war or judicial persuasion or many, many other uh, variables. So I, I think um, now perhaps, you know, you mentioned earlier, Tim, that, you know, for going free will as, as, initial, as an initial vector of approaching this whole conversation might be worth... Um, uh, might, might be worth sidestepping for the time being, and that's fine. Uh, I'll also add that perhaps this conversation and this variable of historical development may not be entirely uh, either relevant or worth it to discuss. That's almost like epistemology with Hegelian historical development in mind. Perhaps that's not entirely necessary, but uh, I think that's a point worth uh, bringing up in this in this conversation, because I think that's something that a lot of modern people take for granted. But uh, that, those are just some of my initial thoughts, and so I'll, I'll hand it back to you guys. I would um, go back to TP's original tripart distinction. I think that that's broadly speaking correct uh, as to how people can believe what they believe. Um, so that that would be reason, culture, and sort of pragmatism. Um, I can't remember who said it uh, recently. Uh, I think it was academic agent that said if there was a fascist takeover, there'd be a lot more fascists. Um, because, well, if if the fascists are in power, then it's going to be politically expedient for you to become a fascist. And so lots of people who are currently in HR departments enforcing um, LGBT, XYZ, etc., etc. Probably got hieroglyphs on there now uh, as well. Um, they would start they, they would start enforcing fascist orthodoxy at work. Why? Because the fascists are in power. Um, so I, I do think uh, a lot of it. And, and I don't actually think it's conscious. I think a lot of people just have a general um, belief, well, a, a, a general incentive to climb the social hierarchy. And so just by osmosis and not being deliberately cynical, just happen to take on the beliefs which happen to be most advantageous to uh, to them. Um, I, I, I think that's um, that's definitely the case. Then the question arises, well, how else can we get? How do the beliefs become socially advantageous? And then you then you're sort of talking about, you know, um, where the country is, what kind of uh, beliefs are going to be more suitable for uh, well, in in well, in one dimension, uh, improving your own material conditions, um, which is going to be different in different circumstances, depending on what the best way is of exploiting the resources around you. Um, I would say when it comes to most people, uh, I think, as uh, TP mentioned, I don't actually think most people reason to their positions very much. Stefan Molyneux was uh, often repeated. Uh, you can't reason people into out of a position that they weren't reasoned into. Um, because most people um, just sort of uh, absorb it. And I think an interesting test case for this, and I haven't done as much research on this as I 
as I possibly should have done. Uh, but I think the paradigm example of how people have changed their views on things is actually the changing uh, social acceptability of smoking, which has gone from basically something that was entirely normal 20 years ago to now something which is basically verboten, uh, especially verboten anything uh, resembling close to being middle class or above. Uh, you can still smoke cigars and stuff, that's okay. But genuine cigarette smoking is just like, no, it's not allowed. Now the question is, why do people change their view? Is it because people knew it was, well, I'm now going to assume that smoking is bad for you, health. I did, and I did read somebody recently who, who claimed that he was a uh, like a personal trainer who smoked organic tobacco without any of the toxins in, and said it was good for him. He smoked five a day. So let's just bracket that and assume that the standard medical story with respect to mainstream cigarettes is true. Well, that didn't really change much from 2000 to 2022. There's not really that the knowledge has changed. So why do people change their behavior? Well, it seems to be one of changing. I would expect if you look at the types of people who smoke in sort of films, it was probably generally towards more bad guys rather than heroes. Um, and then there was also government policy, which basically stopped it being smoked in communal areas, which then made it so that it ceased to be a social norm um, in a way that it had previously been. Um, so smoking is certainly something which um, could look to. And also interestingly as well, as I mentioned before, the LGBT stuff. Uh, recently, uh, a broadcast of the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man 1 or 2 from the early 2000s had a joke edited out of it um, because uh, one of the characters I can't remember who says uh, basically says oh yeah what about you and your boyfriend or something because he was being effeminate or something and they cut that out and that was perfectly normal in 2000 so there's a big about face on that and I think a similar trajectory with uh, the well, different from smoking because obviously it doesn't currently happen in public places although I, I, that, that is, of course, possible. Um, so I, I think that's uh, true. Um, so I, I think it's relatively minimal the people who believe what they believe. Uh, now, TPM raised something about authoritarian regimes and by propaganda. I would actually say to some extent that the situation in the West with respect to propaganda is worse because people in the West don't think there is propaganda in the same way that you probably. Well, that's the question would arise. To what extent do people in North Korea realize they're getting propaganda? I suspect they probably probably think they are getting it. And so I would expect the average North Korean to be relatively skeptical of whatever the North Korean government says. Just because of their own personal experience of what they say and what actually happens. Now, I could be wrong, but in the West, we have the idea we have the free press. Um, but what seems to happen is we have this sort of free press, but then the the only views or the mainstream and the biggest news uh, items basically all agree on all basic values. And they bombard you with it. So the best example of that would be well, lockdowns in 2020 is probably the best example. Uh, no minority view of why this might not be a great idea was ever heard. And of course, related to the propaganda, the whole thing. Oh, no, don't go out. You'll kill grandma. Um, but few people, I think, still think that there was actually it was a propaganda campaign 
even though it was obviously a propaganda campaign. And that's in, not including official government propaganda, but basically what the newspapers were. Um, so that would be my general take on the issue. I think we can bifurcate the uh, the so, so say the the normal quote everyday or you say trolls and the elites or the upper middle class. Um, at some point, somewhere along the line, I think reason has to play at least some role. And if it doesn't, then what are we even doing discussing things? Or at least we're just or or we're all just doing is understanding a kind of of kind of anthropology of like what people say to justify their beliefs. So so if it's all sort of force, there's no sort of reason out there, no sort of evidence, then in a sense, conversation is just another method. I mean, this is sort of a, a TLDR version of argumentation ethics in a sense, um, which is maybe correctly maligned or not maligned. I don't know. But so at a minimum, the elites have to believe like, you know, uh, Lenin, Trotsky, these guys had to convince themselves. And at the time, they weren't capital E elites. They were elites in waiting, for example. They had to convince themselves that this revolution was worth pursuing or not pursuing. Same way we go back to like Madison, Monroe, uh, 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 Jefferson. They sort of had to convince themselves. So, you know, there's a certain moment in history where there's lots of there's things are in flux. There's questions that have to go back to TP's idea. There's questions that have to be decided, like whether we should get to have the king or not to have the king, and, you know, to rebel or not to rebel. There's questions, there's options. I think in those senses, in those circumstances, there's clearly like there's some people are making decisions and they're using arguments, evidence, you know, in the same way that like, you know, if you, you know, you have two options for let's say a job or two options for a house, you're going to look at them. You're going to use, you know, you would use reason to come, well, this house is cheaper. This house has better neighborhood or this house, blah, blah, blah. And you can sort of come to a decision. So in that sense, I think at some point, somewhere along the line, like John Calvin, for example, had to make decisions about like what, you know, or like the Lutherans when they set up, their, when they rebelled from the RCC or the Anglicans, they had to make up too. Now, whether the proles or the everyday people actually went along with this analysis is a good question. I was recently went through the almost through the entire uh, Machiavellian's book by um, uh, James Burnham, recommended by Moldbug and Thaddeus Russell. And he sort of they bring up, I think, Mosque. And this is sort of the point that uh, one of the later chapters, you know, the, the uh, I, I would say elites exercise agency and free will to some extent, to the extent that we can in the same way that people buy houses. You know, you know, Germany didn't need to invade Russia. But somewhere along, they, they believe it was a worthy action to do. Um, um, so so in that respect, I think I think to say that there is no evidence, um, with, you know, um, and I would say that I would say one of the things I think is rational do come people. I, I think about this episode 100 we did was is podcasting a waste of time. I think one of my favorite sort of like uh, meta episodes we did. And, you know. One of the reasons why people might not question things is there's just nothing, there's nothing, there's no real point to uh, question. This is sort of the Chomsky critique of like a uh, of, of political discourse too. Like it's actually Chomsky had a radio, probably had a, we're talking about talk radio, of talk sports radio. He said that talk sports radio, like people at least have some, like uh, it might be more rational for you to have like good views on football um, than, you know, whether or not elections the, you know, because you might get you won't get in trouble for the views on football. You could get in trouble with the views on the election. So there might be rational to be ignorant. 
um, <laughs> especially if you don't have any power, um, it, you know, to, to sort of like the truth will make you flee, so to speak. So I, I sometimes I sometimes sort of arbitrate that view. There's a sort of um, neatness towards not um, so like I might have views, but like and maybe I have them rationally, but there's nothing really I can do to act upon them um, in the way that elites could. And I, I don't really view myself as an elite in waiting, although if someone wants to put me in power, um, that would be great. Um, so on the minor matters, I think I think I would. I'll ask this question on minor matters. Do you think, you know, let's say you're buying a house or a car like this. This is sort of like the classic bourgeois, so to speak, freedom, you know, and you use reason, evidence and sort of work to make a decision. And I think to use if you don't do that, like what, like if you're just you know, some autonomous drone told by God or told by material forces what to do, then like at least we want to understand, like, what are those forces? We want to at least like this is the free will thing. Like, what are those forces telling you to do or not to do? TP, what do you make of this sort of spiel I just gave with respect to elites versus non-elites? Uh, do you think that's an interesting? Do you think that's a worthy uh, break to sort of break them down? Um, you know, it's it's quite clear that like some you know random wage slave doesn't really change in the Democratic Party, uh, but you know someone in in the state probably has a decision on Ukraine that was made. Or maybe not. Maybe it's just sort of like the bureaucracy alive, or it, and it's just sort of sleepwalking toward a thing. TP. Right. I yeah, that's an interesting question. So, you know, your your question as to whether or not, uh, as I understand it, you know, are are these elites making decisions on behalf of the state by you know by you know reason alone? Or, you know, are, are they sort of sleepwalking into things haphazardly because of the complexities and um, and uh, internal contradictions of the bureaucracy? Well, that's, uh, you know, it's really fascinating. I think it's probably a sort of, um, it's probably a mix between the, the two sort of uh, variables depending on the event itself. I think, for example, that uh, with in regards to Ukraine and in regards to this sort of Western uh, NATO uh, support for Ukraine in its defensive war against the Russian invasion, I think that many in the European Union and in uh, North America and in the U.S. State Department and various other places have come to that um, support for Ukraine through, um, you know, I, I think that these people believe what they believe because they've been persuaded by it. But I also believe that all those groups I just mentioned, they are in somewhat, uh, I mean, they're, they're suffering the effects of, of living in a bubble. And now I know that that sort of cliche is stated all the time, but this is very, uh, this, this is very, this very much applies to people in think tanks, Washington, D.C. and the city of London. Uh, in Brussels, um, I think you know to what I'm referencing here. These people are very much living within their own their own political um, artificial realities, meaning that um, they're they're making plans on paper that don't necessarily exist in reality. So, meaning that yeah, we're gonna we're gonna sanction Russia because uh, because Russia, you know, because Putin is bad and evil, and he. He invaded Ukraine out of nowhere, and we're going to sanction them, and their economy is going to suffer, and we're going to not going to suffer any consequences, and then, 
And then in reality, what happens is that, okay, so that put the Germans in the position of freezing over winter because they made the brilliant plan of shutting down all of their nuclear power plants. And then, uh, you know, okay, so they've just, they just negated themselves 40 to 45% of their own gas imports from Russia. Russia then, um, you know, foregoes any further construction or development on the uh, Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, and then they put themselves in this uh, economic, this energy economic crisis. Um, and then all, all sorts of other things too. Uh, they, they didn't, there's obviously just no long-term planning here. There's no long-term conscientiousness about what they're doing. So, yeah, I, I believe that these people came to these these uh, these beliefs about Russia and Putin through their own reason, so to speak. But the, the that reason, in air quotes, was delivered by them by a set of limited factors that were sort of, um, I guess you could say, self-fulfilling or or self um what's the word i'm looking for self-approved within their own sort of think tank and and uh echo chamber uh variable so um yeah i do believe that they do co come to that through reason but uh, you know another another uh point i'd like to address too is that uh what swithin brought up uh earlier was that um i, I think it's absolutely true that Western people come to believe what they believe uh, because, um, you know, through what they're told in the media. And what we're told in the media, at least I, I believe, and I think we can all agree on, is absolutely a form of propaganda. However, how it's presented is to make it seem like it's not propaganda. Like, we're we're here, you know, I mean, the, the brilliant people at CNN or at MSNBC or Fox News, like, we're, we're here for you. <laughs> this is all... It's all in the name of, uh, you know, an open and free democracy. But uh, it's obviously clear with a little bit of digging that um, the American media apparatus is absolutely creating propaganda because uh, look look no further. Probably one of the most blatant and acute examples I can give of recent memory is uh, the so-called Trump-Russia collusion. I mean, it was so uh, – the coverage about Trump and the supposed uh, – um, support he was receiving from Russia, the, the from you know via collusion. I mean, watching Rachel Maddow and all these other uh, media figures, it, it just seemed like professional wrestling. It was just so schizophrenic, and it was just a 24/7. Uh, uh, it was just a 24 non 24/7 nonstop bombardment of paranoia and frothing at the lips and. Uh, Know, this is the end of Trump, and and, and you know the, they they were talking about it as if there was a smoking gun, when in fact that that smoking gun just never came. Uh, so yes, but you know again, but whereas if you were look on the flip side of that, places perhaps like North Korea or China, Iran, uh, Turkmenistan, uh, so on and so forth, I think that. You know, people in these countries are probably actually smarter than we give them credit for. It's just that they're, you know, that they probably know that they're receiving a type of propaganda. And I think that people in the West do too, but a lot of people just go along with these things because, um, well, many people are selfish and they're just going along with what what is expedient and what sort of supports their own worldview and what is pragmatic. Because, again, I think that the majority of humans 
aren't interested or are bored or are confused by the complexities of philosophical epistemology and not many people are uh they're not toiling over the you know let's say the kantian analytic synthetic distinction or a priori and a posteriori uh, distinctions that's just too abstract you know i mean people in elections are not persuaded generally they're not persuaded by you know the support or 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 uh, opposition for certain parties or or candidates by Hegelian uh, models of history. They're, you know, that they're, this is all, that's all just abstract, distant concepts that people are just aren't interested in. And people usually are going for what is convenient, pragmatic, what is beneficial to them and their family and their friends and their, you know, maybe to a slightly lesser extent their community. So um, I hope that that was, I know that's a bit of a shotgun, uh, spread in in response to both of uh, your responses but uh yeah let's i suppose uh, what are what are your your thoughts on all that i would say when it comes to the uh u.s state department in respect to ukraine and say the german um energy policy and then with the policy respect to russia um i think whilst a lot of these people would seem to claim that they have a a general uh, consistent view. What they mostly concern about is what they think, especially the sort of middle class uh, bureaucrat types, is uh, what's going to give them the highest social standing. And it doesn't matter to them that the energy prices go up massively because they're going to be able to afford it anyway. It's not them, so it doesn't matter. Now, they might not think like that, but it means that they're not attentive to the fact that um, those costs will rise significantly. I mean, um, a number of years ago, apparently Boris Johnson, before he was prime minister, was asked how much was uh, a price of the loaf of bread. And he was going, um, um, well, what I can tell you is how much a bottle of champagne costs. Um, because he, he simply didn't know what the price of bread was. So so it's not going to weigh in on them in that way. And the fact with the, the Ukraine-Russia thing, it's like, well, renewable energy is good and gas is better than coal. Nuclear is icky and bad because of Chernobyl. Therefore, we need to be support solar, wind and natural gas. Oh, but then Putin man bad. So, uh, no, we've got to oppose the, uh, well, I was going to say the Mongoloid hordes, but uh, they probably wouldn't want to describe it in that way. Uh, but that's effectively the um, the view that they take. Um, so I, th- I think that really kind of explains. It's not that they're irrational. It's just that their their particular interests don't make them attentive to certain areas. Uh, Tim brought an interesting uh, point of whether or not uh, everyday people use reason and evidence, and I think that's true. They do. I wouldn't want to say the view that people are um, are irrational in a certain sense. I think an interest. I think a reasonable distinction here is to what extent people are uh, rational when it comes to means and when they come to ends. I think most people are rational in certain respects relative um, relative to means. Given a particular goal that they have, they will generally come to a reasonable conclusion of how to achieve it. What they don't really think think about though is their end. So when they're thinking about a house, for instance, their their goal might be, well, I want a bigger house that's nicer 
and so I'm going to get the best out of my money. Um, but the question is, is that really a goal that they should have insofar as this is going to mean they're going to go away from most of their family? Well, a lot of people today might think, well, I should go where they get a better job and get a better house. Now, whether that's the right conclusion is another question. So I think that when it comes to rationality, people, I think where the blind spot mostly is with ends. Now, in a sense, can you really always clearly demarcate between what's a pure means and a pure end? It seems a bit of a continuum there. But I think as a, as a general distinction, I think that's true, that you can to some extent distinguish you know, to, this is to a large extent a means. You know, you get on a bus. I mean, do you like going on the bus? Well, maybe. So it's an end in certain respect. But primarily it's a means because if you didn't get you to where you wanted to go, you wouldn't have gone on it to begin with. Um, so um, that would be so I, I wouldn't. So I'm saying I'm, I don't want to say people are irrational uh, as such. It's it's just that the goals that they are attempting to achieve. Obviously, of course, you could always say everyone's always trying to make themselves better off and take the sort of formal egoist position. Um, but um, but when you get down to concrete, you know, what goals do they think is actually going to make them better off? Those, I think, are generally unreflexive. People are generally unreflexive when it comes to that. Tim, any comments at all? The unreflective part is, is I'd say, is partly the uh, crux of the issue in, in a way. Um, I, I'm sympathetic to the view that... Um, an unreflective life is actually a better life, uh, which is a sort of non, which is sort of a vulgar position to defend, um, considering I read quite a, well, a fair amount and have a podcast here. But I, I do sort of sympathize it because in a sense, you know, like those people in North, North Korea, those common people in North Korea, if they, like one of the reasons I brought up the elites was, for example, the elites have the ability to search things out without really any consequence, as long as they don't like, unless unless it destroys their ability to operate, like they're just sort of corrupt. It's sort of a, it can no longer go along with the system. Like there's, sort of, there's a Marxist film, The Metropolis. I think um, one of the kids of the elites overthrow. I forget the exact plot of it. I actually watched it in German in college once. Um, uh, but the like they're you know looking into things is dangerous in a certain sense. Um, so, so like the, you know, this, you brought up like everyone's just going for determinants, but this, this is also true for like, you know, like if you're, if you're like for Swift and like, or, or like take Ed Fezzer, I'll use a third person. Like I, I it would take a lot. Like if Ed Fezzer came out as a, um, I don't know if he came out as a, uh, a Marxist, or so let's say he came out as a social justice warrior liberal. Um, or like a like a Marxist determinist atheist or something like that. That would cost him a lot of things. Um, like you know, that would cost him a lot of things. Like this is sort of the atheist critique of a lot of like Christians. Like, well, what would it take you to change your belief in this? You know, well, it would destroy my whole social structure. You know, and they'll use that as evidence as like that's the real reason they believe. But as you know, now Ravi Zacharias is much more lying, but he would make the argument. I think Todd Lewis has made the argument too. Um, that like that also applies for like people work for mainstream institutions too. So, you know, it's, um, you know, like um, the, the social context you have, you know, like if you reflect on things and you find your institution to be icky, so to speak, by the reflection, what do you actually do with your said beliefs? Do you change them? Do you abandon the institution? It's a good question. Um, 
Um, so in this respect, like it may be good to be a little bit ignorant of things. Now, now this is from um, the Machiavellians by James uh, 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 Burnham. I said, might have said Buchanan. I always mixed up the name. James Buchanan is the like 15th president of the United States. Um, James Burnham. Um, and this is from page 173. A man's conduct, that is his human action, is logical under the following circumstances. When his action is motivated by deliberately held goal or purpose. When that goal is possible, when the steps or means he takes to reach the goal are in fact appropriate for reaching it. Logical, context, logical conduct is common in the arts, crafts, and sciences, and frequent in economic activity. Pareto calls this the economic field interests. For example, a carpenter wants to make a table, the production table in his deliberately held purpose. This goal is normally quite possible. He assembles, he assembles lumber, tools, etc., and one applies them in a certain fashion. Thus, his conduct with respect to his activity is logical. Um, so, so I, my 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 uh, application here to you know logic, so to speak, or beliefs construction is, you know, it it, it is dangerous to do self surgery on yourself for one thing, and but but elites have the capability to do it, um, but they also have more to lose by doing it. So. So, you know, I do think people have to reason about their beliefs, but there are costs to reasoning or not reasoning about your belief. So in that respect, I think the unreflectiveness, um, I don't know if we would want everyone to be reflective. I think, I think if we've made everyone reflective. That would be a very, that might be a, that, that might be a very bizarre world. Uh, you know, that would be, you know, could lead to a bizarre outcome. That could be lead to an illogical outcome. You know, this idea that, that like myths function you know, everyday myths uh, get get keep society functioning is actually what the view I at times hold that that if you if you if you investigate them, um, they might they might fall away. This is sort of like why, compared to like people like Chomsky and a lot of these Platonists, I'm somewhat reactionary in the sense that I think uh, that 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 society functions on some sort of um, uh, uh, lies, not on uh, not necessarily on on truth. The truth is quite ugly. So so in that respect, my uh, my interest here on like why do people believe what they believe? Like take take Michael Brooks. You know, one thing I once asked like t like like Michael Brooks has very good crit criticism of like capitalism. I agree, he's dead now. But um, like if you if you're really that critical capitalist, how can you function in a society that is? Now you could argue, well, there's a state capitalist, corporate capitalist, blah blah blah. That that's sort of like my opening out kind of like you know get set aside definition disputes. But how do you function in the said society if you think said society? Do you hold that belief? So to speak, you know, if you hold that belief that it, things are really bad, so to speak, how do you function in said society? Which we sort of touched on right that hominin episode too. Um, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, you don't change. You could, you could, you sort of have to sort of like, you could change your belief. You could say that actually it's quite good, or you're working towards something. But I do think the uh, belief question there, um, you know, and again, you could view more distant views, like you know, like Julian Assange, for example. He clearly made a decision somewhere along the line. That was probably going to get him to trouble, quote unquote trouble. Not 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 in like the moral sense. Like like, I don't think he's doing anything wrong per se. But look, there's an example. Um, I don't think he was just like, uh, you know, he had agency to make his decision. Edward Snowden had agency to make his decision. They're not they're not stupid by the normal definition of stupid. Not handicapped. You can't say that. Although the therapeutic state might try to argue they're mentally ill for engaging in that um, kind of actions. Um, um, but uh, that, that, that would be my, that would be my thing on the reflective question. It might be dangerous to reflect on why people believe or don't believe and then act 
because this to me is a follow-up to our ad hominem episode um because one of the things the ad hominem things steve is people say x but do y so the question is which is true is y true or is x true is the action true or is the belief true now sometimes people say x and do x so this is one of the things i like about the trads and the paleos they say family is important they have families right um for more like secular liberals who have families spend most of their time with families and then alternatively say no actually career and uh career and secularism is the most in, in important thing yet if you look at their own lives and this is what charles murray will make fun of they're kind of like um they live charles murray would say they live left they, they 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 think left live right so to speak um so in my opinion in my opinion the ideal thing would be you have x and x parallel your beliefs and actions are parallel but if that's not possible what do you what 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 is to be done there and then which one do you get rid of here so I gave a sort of long rambling response. Sorry for filibusting here somewhat, TP. But what do you make of this? Like, Swithin talked about the reflective thing, but you know, what what will be reflecting on your own beliefs and how do you come? I don't know how I necessarily come to my beliefs. I would say they just sort of just. Um, I would I would say that a lot of them just stem from my social environment and my genetics. If someone really questioned me, like you know, Swithin once forwarded me a theory about kinship selection for families. I thought that was an interesting article. Like the, the that uh you know like the idea that we that people who are somewhat vaguely related have similar beliefs um that's that's an interesting idea um that doesn't really surprise me so to speak um it's actually quite logical if you think about it um so TP what do you make of that like if do you think X and X should be in accordance what do you think and if they're not in accordance what what do you do TP all right that's a that's an interesting question yeah so if I can restate the question for myself it's probably something like uh, you know, do beliefs and their corresponding actions, do they actually correspond? Are they, uh, you know, are, are, are these things uh, commensurate with one another? And the answer is both yes and no. I suppose it, ex it really depends on the external factors. So say, for example, um, uh, Adolf Hitler in the Third Reich. Well, I think due to many external events um, in, in, in the realm of foreign policy, I believe that Hitler really did believe what he had to in terms of trying to conquer, uh, you know, and, and eke out a Lebensraum for the so-called Aryan people. And he sort of followed, you know, he he, he came to a, a so-called logical conclusion to what he had to do for Germany during uh, the Second World War. I, I you know, Sometimes you, with with people like Stalin or Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot, um, Mussolini, Salazar, uh, uh, Gaddafi, uh, all sorts of people, um, you have to sort of now, of course, I guess this is a case by case basis, trying to be as careful as possible here. But in in many cases, you have to people you have to take people at their word. Uh, perhaps a better way of looking at this is. Um, Julian Assange and uh, Edward Snowden. Um, I I tend to think that uh, Julian Assange is a conscientious enough of a person to know that you know when he did leak a lot of the material that he did, I'm certain that he had some sort of inkling of an idea of how consequential it might be. I think that he probably thought that he would have received more legal support from the state that um, 
that he would have, uh, because I believe he's being held in Great Britain, I think he, he thought that he might have been able to, you know, blow the lid wide open on, you know, international corruption in, in, in the United States and Great Britain, yeah. again, some of these Anglosphere governments, but uh, he probably failed to anticipate that uh, just how deeply corrupt a lot of these uh, states actually are, and that... Um, you know, he, you know, he gave away confidential information that was potentially uh, dangerous for militaries, uh, for the British and American militaries in the Middle East. But, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, was it so compromising that it led to the deaths of troops? I, I don't think so. I mean, the possibility was there, apparently, but I, I didn't, I never, I, I was never made aware of any evidence that that was the case. So in Julian Assange's case, I think his beliefs and his actions corresponded. They are commensurate with each other. However, he had to pay the consequences of his beliefs and his actions because, unfortunately for him, these Western governments are much more corrupt and they're more secretive about their corruption than I think most people are aware. In places like North Korea, it's probably more blatant for the places like the United States, uh, it's much, much more, it's, it's just, it's just more crafty and more well-concealed than people. So, um, sometimes people have beliefs and actions that don't correspond, and the reason they don't correspond is out of, um, it's out of pragmatism or perhaps even selfishness or expedience or, it's out of the desire to uh, maintain some sort of culture or identity or religion or ethnicity or something like that. So uh, the case, uh, you know, a case of this might be the Likud party in Israel with um, being, you know, unnecessarily aggressive towards their neighbors in, in the Gaza Strip or in the West Bank. Um, you know, I, you know, by and large, I think it's probably fair to say that the Jewish religion is not this, you know, imperialistic people or, or you know, conquering people, say, of like, you know, Muhammad in North Africa in the, uh, um, you know, in the 7th century uh, AD. It's more that, uh, you know, they're, you know, this Likud party is uh, doing what they think is necessary in order to maintain a, a safe and free Israel by... Uh, you know, c uh, conducting these aerial bombardments in places like Gaza and the West in the West Bank. So that might be you say that that could be some something like a an example of beliefs and actions not always corresponding not always corresponding because of the uh, interest of uh, culture and pragmatism. So yeah, that's sort of a um, I would say that that's that's just sort of some of my initial thoughts, and you know, perhaps you know, for the listener, something that's a bit more um, something that's more contemporary is again this uh, this war in Ukraine. Now, you know, just as a just as a very quick recap, what we were sold as far as Ukraine is that um, Vladimir Putin, out of nowhere, uh, out of no context whatsoever decided to 180 no-scope Ukraine and invade. And uh, and he did this because uh, because he's evil, he's a tyrant, he's selfish, and uh, and he's just, uh, he's unhinged. 
and and this was apparently due to no context whatsoever and um, we don't want to hear anything about NATO and we don't want to hear anything about uh, broken promises to uh, Russia uh, post 1991 and uh, we just want to we, 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 this is this is what happened um, and we don't want to have any conversations about uh, uh, Hunter Biden being on the board of a Ukrainian gas company and we don't want any conversations about uh, Biden and uh, Biden and Obama um, forcefully removing a judge in Ukraine for uh, for nefarious reasons and uh, we don't want to hear anything about the color revolution in 2014 2015 and so uh, yeah that, there's a very very you know specifically articulated package that uh, the Americans <clears throat> and the Western Europeans have been sold uh, the reality of it I would argue is that NATO's uh, very uh, subtle aggressive moves uh, meaning that uh, NATO made multiple promises to Russia that they would not expand into Eastern Europe well that broke that promise has been broken several times in the form of Poland joining NATO Estonia Latvia and Lithuania uh, and several other countries um, you know and, and again why you have to ask the question from a geostrategic point of view why would Russia be okay with a hostile military alliance gaining further and further membership on its borders this would be like China and Russia forming a new sort of uh, alliance themselves and then Mexico joins well <laughs> yeah if it wasn't okay for the uh, for the Cubans to set up missiles in the 1960s uh, via the Soviet Union why would it be okay for the United States to set up camp in Ukraine no one is asking themselves this question okay so uh, you got you both might be asking okay well what does this have to do with free will and epistemology and and uh, why people what they believe well again just to reiterate I think that many of the Western leaders believe all of this because it's what's being repeated ad nauseum in their state departments and in their cushy offices and in their uh, well-funded think tanks and in this sort of uh, severed from the world uh, environments that they live in. Uh, again, many people in Brussels are making, uh, you know, very, you know, black turtleneck elite out of touch uh, politicians are making decisions for people in Brussels. They're making decisions for farmers with six or seven kids in the, uh, you know, on, on the Hungarian plain or in, uh, you know, in the rural parts of the Netherlands. These people really are out of touch. There's a reason that these out of touch, you know, quote unquote, out of touch politicians are a meme because they exist today and they make decisions that only exist on paper. Again, uh, Hitler was ordering invisible divisions around in the days of mid-1945 because he thought that a, um, you know, a, a general could break one particular general with several, quote unquote, uh, infantry and armored divisions could break the siege of Berlin. But that general only had a fraction of those forces in reality that Hitler believed existed on paper. So, so um, I guess what I'm getting here at is that uh, I guess what I'm getting at here is that uh, many statesmen, many politicians, elites, academics, um, intellectuals come to believe what they believe. Yes, through through uh, through rational deduction. But they, too, are just as subject to propaganda, to personal beliefs, because of a well-curated echo chamber, isolated um, sort of environment from, from, from the rest of society. So 
despite all of the dialogue that might say otherwise. So um, beliefs and actions don't always correspond because of the deference, you know, because of people uh, deferring to um, what is pragmatic, what is expedient, and what allows people their ultimate material gains. I think there are genuinely good people like Julian Assange. I think he, again, I think he just probably failed to realize that, uh, yes, on paper, you have all sorts of legal protections uh, in Great Britain or perhaps in the United States, but uh, those protections only go so far depending on how much juicy red meat you have on the state itself. <laughs> and he's in that very unique position right now. So, um, and, you know, and again, in regards, as a way of interfacing my spiel there with Ukraine towards how people believe what they believe, that um, there are many, many reasons, uh, you know, beneficiary reasons why statesmen in the West are so anti-Russia and anti-Putin, because if if NATO has a like the most desired victory that NATO can have is perhaps like a collapsed Russia that ousts Putin, and what happens as a result is the installation of a pro-West, pro-NATO Russian Federation where Western firms and NATO countries have an uninterrupted access or perhaps a uh, you know a, an uninterrupted negotiation favorable negotiation favorable negotiations with Russia's oil and natural gas markets. Um, so so that, that that's the interest that they sort of have. Will they oust Putin? I highly doubt it. The reality is that the ruble has actually come back stronger than it was in, pre, uh, in its pre-war condition. And now um, Europe has been rejected multiple options of gas, like uh, from Saudi Arabia, from Qatar, from Venezuela, from the United States, it's uh, effectively out of options. And I think they, 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 uh, Rus or excuse me, Western Europe was depending on the, uh, the power output capabilities from a certain uh, nuclear plant in Ukraine that has now been shut down. So again, they, they really uh, shot their big toe off, so to speak, when, uh, when, when they decided to uh, implement all these sanctions on Russia. And so I, I do believe that these, uh, that these uh, EU leaders are just, their beliefs and their actions are corresponding to what they are. Unfortunately, their beliefs are not well curated by the outside world and not in touch with their constituents like the farmers in, uh, in the Netherlands or a lot of these work, these, uh, 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 these work, uh, the, these uh, labor unions in Germany and many other examples. So I'll, I'll leave at that. I would agree uh, with most of what uh, TP said. I think one aspect we've missed though here is I do think people the cor people do not have beliefs that correspond with their actions. Um, basic weakness of will. Um, an obvious example would be uh, somebody who consciously wants to go on a diet and lose weight and then they're in the store and they see the cake. They go, oh, I'm a bit hungry. I don't have one, it'll be okay. And then they eat it and then they do this regularly more than they think. Um, there's, uh, I just remember a study saying that people believe that they take in far fewer calories than they actually do. Um, and I think it is the case that they do believe that they want to try and do it and they're sort of 
they think that they're trying. But due to weakness of will, um, they um, they don't carry through with it. I mean, Paul in um, the New Testament, which which one it is, uh, mentions you know the, the things that I I kind of want to do, I I I, I don't do. You know, there's there's a there's a there are things that people want to do, but because of um, their sensory dispositions um, inclines them not to do it because it's too hard, hard physical work or doing something else is more pleasurable. Uh, so physiologically, then they don't do it. So I think that's um, that's another aspect, uh, I would say. That's a note here. Um, anybody, any we come to one hour, I don't final comments. Uh, yeah, let's do, yeah, this will be my final comment. This will be a minute or two, and then we'll, we'll get going here. Um, the weakness of will point, I think, um, um, is a is a relevant point to be bring up because it does explain why you know if X the difference between X and Y, so to speak. Although you can, of course, just say social circumstances make it impossible for me to have my will uh, manifest in in a way that is desirable. So like you now this this goes back to the nanny state ideal. We'll just get rid of. If, instead of instead of having people break the smoking or whatever, they'll just you, use the state to get rid of all the cigarettes in the market, so to speak, and or make them more expensive, so to speak. And that's how they'll sort of correct the will, um, get over the sort of weakness of will point. Um, so, but but that's still uh, interestingly enough, though, under that framework, people still want to do it; they just can't physically do it, or they don't want. Uh, so, that, like you know, do you really want to do it? Um, so, which goes back to the, you know the belief question is like. You know, which I opened with here. Sort of, again, I had sidestepped two things, which is number one, I sidestepped the um, free will question, but I also sidestepped, you know, what does it look like for a non, like a person who identifies as a non-smoker but smokes all a day. Um, there's a certain question, like, you know, is that person really which which one is which one's incorrect and which one's correct? And I brought up Assange for example because I thought, you know, Assange is an honorable person because X and X aren't aligned. Um, in a sense, he's doing you know the uh, uh, the uh, I think I think the the the, the deed so to speak uh, uh, the witness of the deed or something like that I think is a term that's been used so that that would be my my final comment thanks for doing this discussion TP do you have any final comments here um, and then with it and then thanks yeah well as always uh, uh, thanks for having me uh, you guys have always had great conversations um, and I yeah I feel uh, I feel happy and honored to be a part of them. Um, I suppose my final comment here is just that, um, yeah, I, I, I suppose I'll just restate what I said uh, initially is that I think most people, whether it's in, uh, you know, majority of uh, humanity today, whether if it's in Cairo or London, Vienna, Tokyo, or anywhere else, I think that most people come to believe what they believe out of a combination of their social environment, their culture, and then what is just pragmatic and what it makes life sort of uh, pragmatic and expedient. I, I think the uh, sort of ivory tower, highly contemplative um, mode of thinking, you know, like that of academics, writers, bookworms, those who are philosophically inclined, I think that that's actually a pretty small portion of the the bell curve distribution. Um, you know, most people, uh, yes, I, I think 
for the majority of humanity, people are that there's a sort of smaller percentage of people who come to believe what they believe through reason. But I, I tend to think that that's something that's more emphasized and more apparent in the academic circles and in the humanities and things like that. And that's that's uh, I don't think that's neither depressing or good or bad. It's just more of a uh, it's just more of an analytical reflection of how things work, in my personal opinion. So, anyways, um, but uh, before I go on any further, I think we I think we hashed it out fairly well here today. And uh, as always, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I'll see you guys on the next one. Thanks for joining us, TP. The rubles will be sent to you by post. I'd now like to thank everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and anything you think will find it of interest. Um, and please subscribe to us on Podbean and YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access the material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason, please contact us at mindcryingthebitshow at gmail.com. That's mindcryingthebitshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to contact the show for any reason, please contact us at mindcryingthebitshow at gmail.com. That's mindcryingthebitshow at gmail.com. Oh, 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 oh,